that God is for us. And I promised to ask you a question this week. Um, what are we supposed to do with, I think it's Romans 8.31 and then the various other texts that we talked about that God is for us. What are we supposed to do with it? Does anybody remember how I closed the sermon last week? Anybody? Pardon me? Everything. Everything. Very good, Chinelo. Everything. What are we supposed to do with the fact that God is for us? Everything God has called you to do. Don't leave one thing undone in 2019. You can do all He says because He will do all He says. So you have complete, utter, total, absolute license to be a disciple in the world in 2019. You have no excuse. If you think you have an excuse, just listen to the last two sermons. You have no excuse. You can follow Him wherever He leads you because He is a competent God. This is what we've been talking about. So, all of this that I've just said and what we've talked about the last two weeks, it it, it all just flows out of who God is, right? It just flows out of who He is. This is known as... So what do we call the science of of understanding uh, God and how to speak about God? It's just called theology, right? And it's just good theology. It's just learning God correctly. This is why we can be free in the world to live in a counter-cultural way. Yeah, the world hates the believer. Uh, We see this in the Gospel of John. Jesus said, if they hated me, they'll hate you too. But we can be fearless in the world because, again, he He is a competent God. All we have to do is learn God correctly. That's all we have to do. Um, okay, I'm going to steal another quote from John Piper. It's a short one. He, and he says it so well. Four words. Bad theology hurts people. And as I, as I read the, the text and studied the text, um, I realized that what Jesus always puts in front of us is good theology. It's, it's God-centered theology, right? Bad theology hurts people. And so the converse of what Jesus is saying here is bad theology. Bad theology takes people to hell. Okay? But in the Bible, we're always getting good theology. Last week I mentioned that many so-called churches avoid theology and doctrine. They believe it's divisive. Well, that's not really a true church. Okay? Um, uh, A a true church in the biblical sense, the Christ-centered sense, will always be talking doctrine and theology. I think I've mentioned it and I've already alluded to it. If you're going to be a radical Christian in the world, you better have some good theology. I was talk- Karen and I have been talking about this. We've been watching our parents age. And I realized, man, if you don't have a good theology about aging, you'll probably fall away. Aging's a hard thing. You constantly are losing things. And ultimately, even your mind and and certainly your body. If you don't have a theology about aging, I'll be honest with you, I'm real humbled. And I'm already talking to God about this. Bad theology, it hurts people. It won't get you to the grave. Good theology will. God-centered theology. Biblical theology Inexplicably, many people who call themselves Christians would rather hear an ear-tickling sermon than 
you know, what God has to say. You know, uh, I'm, I'm okay, you're okay kind of sermon. Let me finish the quote from Piper. Bad theology hurts people. Wrong thinking about God leads to wrong believing, and wrong believing leads to wrong living, and wrong living leads to condemnation. You know, I preach the way I preach because I've said this to you many times. Every time I preach, everything's at stake. You know, we're not just playing games in here. This is not just a social club. It's not just a fraternity. God has established the church and a preacher to proclaim the Word of God and everything's always at stake. Everything is at stake. There's not one thing in your life that's not at stake when you're sitting under the preached Word of God. You know many churches, you've been in them. You guys are internationals and you travel a lot. You've been in churches where it's mostly about you. <laughs> you, 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 know, you, you, you know these sermons. You sit there and you realize the guy's saying, it's mostly about me and how God can serve me. And if you're born again, you realize... This is utterly false. It is not about me. It is about God. Hey, when I go to a church, I want a man to stand up and tell me about God. That's what I want to hear. I don't want to hear about me. I know too much about me. I want to hear about God. And I want to hear about God, how God will change me. You know, there's that great line in the book, Amazing Grace, where um, uh, William Penn, I think, asked, uh, who's the guy, who's the main guy that did the slavery thing? What's his name? Um, Wilberforce. And Wilberforce says, we can change the world. No, Penn says, we can change the world. Wilberforce says, I change myself first. Now, here's a self-aware man. <laughs> okay? I want to hear about God because looking at God, I know I can be changed. So, I don't think you'd still be here if you did not if you were not interested in God-centered sermons. So, these guys that preach me-centered sermons, they're, they're doing two very dangerous things. They're allowing people who are not converted to believe that they are. Alright? And those who are converted, they're not feeding them. They're not giving them meat and bread and food so they might grow up uh, and mature and become complete in Christ so they might, they might be who they're supposed to be in the world. Man, if you're not eating biblical truth, you can't walk with God. You'll fold every time in the world. If you're not in this, you'll fold every time. You know, all the best intentions in the world, you can't do the Word without the Word. You can't do it. You won't do it. You'll just go with the culture, which obviously is a lot easier. Now, if we love people, we will not be an accomplice in their spiritual deception. We will challenge them as the Apostle Paul did, 2 Corinthians 13.5, always to examine themselves. Look at the Bible. Look at your life. Am I a believer? Do I look like what Jesus says a real believer will look like? And that's what he's talking about in John 15. There's absolutely no debate among conservative, sound, biblical theologians. That's exactly what Jesus is talking about here. 
He's talking about the true believer as opposed to those who profess to simply believe but really don't. It's not in their life. You heard the text read, there is no fruit. There is no fruit. And what's the ultimate fruit? We'll develop this further next week. But what is, what is the, the easy thing we could say about how do we know the fruit of a true believer? What's the one word answer we could come up with? It's righteousness. It's righteousness. And we'll talk more about that in the next week or so. So that brings me to John 15. Jesus is talking about the difference between a true believer and only those who are playing games with Him. This is an urgently important chapter in our day and age where there is so much really, really, really bad preaching. So as we get into John 15, um, just to bring you up to speed where we are, we've been in the upper room since John 13. This is, this is the last night of Jesus' life upon the earth. He will be arrested this night. He will be crucified likely within the next 24 hours. So as you look there, maybe in John 14.31, if you have your Bible open, He and His 11 remaining disciples, Jesus says, Arise, let us go from here. He's leaving the upper room. Okay, it's just the 11. What happened to the 12th guy? Where's the 12th guy? He's been dismissed. It's Judas. And that's huge. You've got, you, you got to remember the context here. Judas has been dismissed. There's 11 guys. Jesus starts talking about the vine and the branches. Okay? It's important to note, and I will bring us back to that uh, very soon. Jesus leaves the upper room. They pass through Jerusalem. They go out the eastern gate and they're walking toward the garden. You know which one, the Garden of Gethsemane. No doubt Jesus can see vineyards. Or He may even be walking through a vineyard. And He begins to teach His men good theology. <laughs> you know, that's one thing you can trust, man. The red words. You're always going to get Good theology. So, the truths revealed here in this analogy or metaphor or allegory or parable or simile, whatever you would like to call it, are foundational and fundamental. They are urgent for us to understand. Jesus is saying nothing less than what the difference between a true believer and a false believer is. He, this is and He's saying heaven and hell is in the balance. This is what Jesus is saying. This is how important John 15 is. He's teaching His 11 guys so His 11 guys can go into the world and teach the world. The difference between the one who is merely religious and the one who is a true disciple. So I'm just going to reread verses 1-3 through three just to set the stage again. Okay? And... Uh, and we're going to talk, we're going to, I'm going to lay some groundwork tonight so we can kind of do a better job of understanding John 15 next week and the following week possibly. Verse 1 again, Jesus, He sees the vine, He sees the vineyard, and He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes it away. And every branch that bears fruit, He prunes it that it may bear more fruit. You are always clean because, you, because of the Word which I have spoken to you. Now, some of you that are native Italians, you take it for granted, but I come from 
you know, the southern part of the states, and there are no vineyards where I come from. Man, you just drive through Italy, and there are all these beautiful vineyards. Don't you love I, love, I think it's my favorite site, are these beautiful vineyards all through Italy. And one thing I kind of realize is, as you look at them, you realize probably vineyards, and maybe I'm wrong, but tell me if you think I'm wrong, or maybe you know more. I don't think they can be mechanized like a lot of different kinds of agriculture, right? Am I right about that? I don't see how it can be mechanized. I mean, actually the vine dresser is going to put his hands on it. This is what he does. So do you get the, the beauty of the imagery here, right? <laughs> you know, it can't be mechanized. The vine dresser will be putting his hands on the fruit. And I just want to remind you of some of the images that God uses to talk about Himself and His people. You'll be familiar with these. They're very famous. Then we'll get into the, the vine and the branches. One is the potter and the clay. You know this one. I know you know this one. What a beautiful picture. The potter's hands are on the clay. God's hands are on you. If you belong to Him, His hands are on you. And He will finish the good work He's begun, Philippians chapter 1. He is going to bring a masterpiece out of your mess. Right? You know you're a mess, right? Apart from God, you know you're an utter, complete, broken mess. Just like me. But God will bring a masterpiece. This is what God is doing. I, I love that imagery. I love that imagery. He'll bring us into conformity with His Son. We saw it last week in Romans 8.29. A second image is what? The, the sheep and the shepherd. Some of you may remember John chapter 10 where we saw how closely the shepherd examined the sheep each night. And we talked a lot about that and the intimacy there was and how He called them by name. They knew Him. He knew them. There was a relationship there. And also we saw, we talked about how the shepherd would risk his life for the sheep as David did for his sheep. And as Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. So tonight we see a third image. We see the vine dresser, the vine, and the branches. So Jesus sees a vineyard or He may be walking through one. He says, this is how it is with you and me. I think so these men would never forget. He said, this is exactly what it is with you and me. I am the vine and you are the branches. And so what's on a healthy branch? What's on a healthy, always on a healthy branch? Fruit. And so immediately, although we, we, we may not understand it yet, Jesus will, will continue and expound, but immediately we see there is a difference between the true believer and the false, there will be fruit. This is the point that Jesus is making. The branch that would bear no fruit is gone. Judas is gone. The Judas branch is gone. These eleven will bear fruit. It's almost like an encouragement too uh, to these eleven men. You will bear fruit. You are mine. You are in Me. And you will bear fruit. So we have the we have the Trinity here. The Father is the vine dresser. The Son is the vine. And although He's not mentioned, we can by extension imagine that the Holy Spirit is the sap running through the vine and 
the branches. We see a beautiful picture of God's sovereign and omnipotent love for His own. Um, in uh, this, uh, this picture, Jesus says, this is how it is with me and my people. There's an intimacy, there's a union, there's a connection. And by my power and the power of the Spirit of God, there will be fruit in the lives of my people. It cannot not happen. It will happen. No such thing as a believer with no fruit. No such thing. It will not happen. It cannot happen. No such thing. No such thing. This, this imagery was a big deal. The Jews, you know, the, the eleven would have known immediately what he's talking about. The Old Testament imagery, Old Testament imagery of, of uh, the vine. Historically, it was on uh, some of the coins of Israel. There's a, there was in the temple. There was a, a great golden vine that was embossed on the door of the temple. They knew what he was talking about. They understand that Israel was the vine of God. And now Jesus is talking about something else. Jesus is the vine. Jesus is the vine. And His people are the branches. Now, one, one more thing I want to say. I'm laying groundwork for the whole thing, okay? We'll get more in detail next time. One more, one more thing I want to say is this is the seventh I am statement. You guys know this, right? You guys are biblically literate for the most part, I think. Um, the, this is the seventh I am statement in the Gospel of John. Jesus has been saying, I am, I am, I am, before Abraham was, I am. He's been saying it all along. He's God. Nobody else is God. I'm God. Now, you have to be willfully ignorant or completely, you know, I don't know. Let's just leave it there. You have to be willfully ignorant, not, willfully ignorant not to understand that Jesus did not claim to be God, clearly. But let me give you the other six I am statements just for those of you who may be interested. Jesus says, I am the bread of life, John 6. I am the light of the world, John 8. I am the door of the sheep, John 10. I am the good shepherd, John 10. I am the resurrection and the life, John 11. I am the way, the truth, and the life, John 14. And tonight, Jesus says, I am the true vine. I, had, I have to share this with you. I saw it in my notes from many years ago. It's in the margin of my Bible. Uh, and I hear some bad theology. Jesus didn't say, I am whoever you want me to be as long as you're sincere about it. Jesus didn't say that. He says, I am who I am. Exodus chapter 3 is God spoke to Moses, I am who I am. I do whatever I please in heaven and earth. Beloved, I always encourage you to have a little humility before God. If you don't have any humility, you don't know anything about Him. You have some vague cartoon notion of who you think God is. He is the awesome, fearsome, consuming fire God of the Bible. So there are a few interpretive challenges here in John 15 that I want to talk about at the outset. Particularly regarding the branches being removed and cast into the fire. The branches are said in verse 2 to be in Jesus. Also in verse 2, uh, the non-fruit-bearing branches are said to be taken away. And then we see in verse 6, they are cast into the fire. Let me read verse 6 to you. If anyone does not abide in Me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are 
burn. So how are we to understand this? This seems to trip up many people. <laughs> okay? I, I, I don't understand why, but it seems to trip up a lot of folks. So how are we to understand this? Are these non-fruit-bearing Christians, are, are, are they Christians that have lost their salvation? Are they the wood, hay, and straw works of the Christians that are burned up in 1 Corinthians 3? Or are, or are they false disciples? Are they the Judas, the Judas branch who only gave the appearance of following Christ but never loved Him? Never loved Him. Never gave themselves away to Him. Never truly followed Him from the heart. So I just want to make three comments about when you're looking at a parable, what you need to remember, okay? This will help us. What you need to remember when we look at a parable, you have to look at the context. You have to look at context. The context is Judas has just left. And I'm going to show you a little bit more clearly how you, how you, how you can see how the context ties in. You must look at context. Number two, you must let Scripture interpret Scripture. Our interpretation uh, of, the, of the parable or the analogy or the allegory must square with the rest of the Bible. It can't be at odds with the rest of the Bible. The Bible interprets the Bible. You have to always remember that. And you cannot press the symbolism too far in any parable, um, which many are guilty of doing. So if you don't do these three things, what you end up with is bad theology. <laughs> and what we're trying to do is understand the red words here because we know Jesus is speaking good theology to us. If we follow these three interpretive rules, the allegory is very clear. So first let me dismiss this uh, false notion that these non-fruit-bearing branches are talking about Christians who lose their salvation. What I want to say to you is no true Christian can ever lose their salvation. You know why that's true? Why is that true? Because your faith is so great? No. Because your God saves. Okay? No true believer, you may have been taught this, it's wrong. You either taught, you're either sitting under a bad teacher or an ignorant teacher or a false teacher. No true believer ever loses their salvation because salvation is of God. God does it from beginning to end. God does it from eternity past to eternity future. It's all God. Yes, you must respond in faith, but He grants the faith. <laughs> he grants repentance and faith. It's all God's work. So if you start talking about believers losing their salvation, you are blaspheming God. Beloved, this is something you shouldn't talk about lightly. God gets glory from the salvation of His people, right? He gets the glory. You don't get it. The church doesn't get it. I don't get it. God gets it. It's His glory. Don't touch it. Don't touch it. This is an affront to the greatness of God that you would ever say it's possible to lose your salvation. Because God... Listen, when God saves... He saves. We saw it last week, right? Let me give you two quick verses. John 6.37 All that the Father gives me, what? Shall come to me. It will happen. It will happen. 
John 10.28 And I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish and no one shall snatch them out of My hand. They cannot leave My hand. I'm holding them with My omnipotent power. I hold them. Don't you dare talk about losing salvation. You know, I understand what people are saying sometimes in this regard is, well, this guy once, he was really fired up and now he just left and he's like, he's in the world and he doesn't care anything about God. Listen, what we're talking about there is a Judas branch. Okay? We're not talking about someone that had it and lost it. That's, that never happens in a biblical sense. We talked about it last week, Romans 8, 29-30. We saw it. Let me, just re, just, let me just remind you what God says. God says regarding His people, He says, I have foreknown them. I have predestined them. I have called them. I have justified them. And I have glorified them. It is a done deal. And every true believer will persevere because God will persevere. You've got to understand this. You are secure in God. You are securing God, not because you have great faith, but because God is faithful. You know, Christianity is never about your resume. <laughs> it's always about God's resume. Amen? It's about His glory. It's not about you. It's not about your glory. So again, if you've been taught that a Christian can lose their salvation, you've just had the misfortune of sitting under bad teaching. If you have questions about that, I'll be happy to help you. Secondly, let me address this notion that what is being removed and burned are the wood, hay, and stubble works or the fleshly works of a Christian. That the non-fruit-bearing branch are the works of the true believer, again mentioned in 1 Corinthians 3. There's a huge problem with this so-called interpretation. <laughs> okay, it runs against... Common rules of grammar and syntax, okay? That's not what the text says. The branches are not the, the fleshly works of true believers. The branches are the people making a profession of faith. It's, it's you and me. That's what the branches, that's what the text says. Okay, you have to stand grammar and syntax on its head to say that these are the fleshly works being cast to, uh, into the fire. It's just an unwarranted mixing of metaphors. It makes absolutely no sense. It's a dishonest view of the text. You know, this is what happens when men want to mitigate or temper the, the harshness of the biblical words. That's what's happening here, I believe. That is what is happening. So that leaves us with one other legitimate question regarding what Jesus says about these branches. In verse 2, Jesus says, these non-fruit-bearing branches are in Me. These branches are said to be in Christ, but then they're taken away in and removed. So does in Me mean genuinely converted? No, as I've already said, it does not. This is where it... People try to press the symbolism a bit too far. You say, well, Jim, how can you back that up? Easy. Easy. Romans chapter 11. Why did God break off some of the branches of the olive tree? Does anybody remember Paul's argument? Anybody remember Paul's argument? Why did he break them off? For unbelief. They were broken off for unbelief. 
the Gentiles may be grafted in. Why were they broken off? Unbelief. Okay? Paul uses the same kind of imagery that Jesus is using here in John 15. You know, in Romans 11, Paul says, Behold the kindness and severity of God. <laughs> listen, listen. If, 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 if you're a branch and there's no fruit, on the last day, you will be broken off and cast into the fire. Now you say, well, Jim, that's pretty harsh. Hey, I'm just reading you the red words. If you don't like the red words, you might not want to hang around much longer because it's all going to be red words through the end of John. Okay? It's almost all going to be red words. If you don't like what Jesus says, that's between you and Him. God broke off the branches of the olive tree, which was Israel. This is the imagery. Because they were false. He broke them off. They professed to be Jews. They professed to believe, but they did not believe in a saving way. He broke them off. He did it with Israel. He's going to do the same thing with the church. According to John 15, God will remove the tares from among the wheat. That's another imagery there. Another clear parable. So, if you have problems with this, you, I'm happy to sit down with you, but I don't know how it could be any more clear than it is. So, now to the context of the passage, which I've alluded to already several times. And the context clearly interprets the passage for us. So I want you to remember, John 13, 14, and 15 happened within minutes or maybe within as much as hours. Okay, this is all... This is all one evening. John 13, 14, and 15. This all happened in one evening. So in John 13, Jesus and the twelve disciples entered the upper room. The first thing Jesus did was wash the feet of His disciples. Uh, in John 13, uh, so they, we, we learn that something very telling happens. Peter protested about Jesus washing His feet. Peter said, no, you'll never wash my feet. Then Jesus said, if I don't wash you, you have no part in me. Then Peter said, then wash all of me. Remember? And I'm going to turn over and just read John 13, 10 and 11 real quick. Listen to what Jesus says. Jesus said to Peter, verse 10, John 13, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. Who's he talking about right there? Who's he talking about? Judas. Verse 11, For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason he said, Not all of you are clean. He's talking about Judas. Judas is not clean. Look at verse 3 back over in John 15. He says to the eleven, without exception, He says, you are already clean. So what's the difference between... John, what's happened between John 13 and John 15? Judas is gone. The Judas branch is gone. The fruitless branch is gone. The one who falsely professed to believe but had nothing real going on in his heart, he's gone. Beloved, this is the context of this parable. It's so crystal clear what's being said here, okay? It is absolutely crystal clear what is being 
said, the context help us, helps us to see that the non-fruit-bearing branches are in fact Judas branches. They appear to be in Christ, but they are not in Christ. To use an old word, they are hypocrites. They profess to believe in Jesus, but there is no fruit. There is no repentance of sin. There is no deep and abiding love for God and love for God's people, and love for God's Word, and love for God's sanctification, and therefore the fruit of righteousness is being born in the, in the life. This is the clear meaning of the text. Judas looked real. He looked real. Everybody, everybody knew he was real. Man, he was even a preacher. He preached. And he walked with Jesus. He slept with Jesus. He ate with Jesus. Of course he's real. No, he's not real. It's not here. He doesn't love God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's not here. It's not in his heart. He looked true. He was a fraud. He was a pretender. He had the disciples' facade and he talked a good game. But he didn't really love Jesus. And there was no true obedience. You know, the, the false Christian, the pseudo-Christian can feign obedience. But the only kind of obedience that God acknowledges is the, one, the, the obedience that starts right here. Right? It starts right here. Okay? You know, outward obedience, God's not impressed. He's not impressed. He's not interested in your religious do-gooding. He's not interested in the least. In fact, he hates it. So by Judas, listen, by Judas' choices, his actions and his deeds, his life showed he was a false disciple. Every, every false disciple will be, will be shown. Will be... What's the word I'm looking for? Um will be put on display. It will be made evident. In the end, it will be made evident. As we studied, some of you may not know the Gospel of John well, but if you take the time to study it, you realize that this, this uh, pseudo-faith thing is, is a major sub-theme of the book. Many. What chapter was it when the multitude turned away from Him? Uh, I forget now after the feeding. Uh, maybe John? No, I can't remember. John 7 maybe? doesn't matter. Many who would seem to be following Christ, but, but, but they don't finish with Christ. Here's the deal, beloved. Your Christianity is not based on if you were baptized when you were eight. Your Christianity will be based on do you finish? Okay? Do you finish with God? It's not some prayer you prayed or some ordinance you did. Will you, are you, will you finish with God? <laughs> you know, that's it. Do you have the fruit of righteousness in your life? And is it increasing? But this is a major sub-theme of John. Many who start with Christ do not finish with Him. You may remember John 14, um, 15. Jesus said what? If 
you what? Love me, you'll keep my commandments. Obedience is always the evidence of true conversion. Yeah, sure, people can go through the outward motions of obedience. No question about it. They can do that. But the true fruit of true conversion will always be a love for Christ which gives birth to obedience. You may remember what Jesus said in Matthew 15, 8 and 9. They honor Me with their lips. This happens all over the world every Sunday. People honoring God with their lips, right? Jesus goes on, but their heart is far from Me. In vain do they worship Me. Now, some of you may say, well, Jim, this is a strong message. I, I, I know. I know. It's the red words, man. <laughs> you know, it's God talking to us. God incarnate talking to us. I want to go back. I want to visit, revisit the fruit metaphor one more time from another text. Matthew 7. You probably are familiar with it. Every good tree bears what? Good fruit. Verse 17 of Matthew 7. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Verse 19 of Matthew 7. Jesus said, You will know them by their fruit. God says this multiple times in multiple places so you will understand. You want to know if you're a real Christian? Look at your life. If you're a real Christian, it will be in your life. It's not just I was baptized when I was eight and I, I prayed the prayer. You can't find that formula in the Bible. What you find in the Bible is what we're talking about here tonight. If it's real, it's in your life. If it's real, it is in your life. Here's the, here's, here's the, the skinny on this, okay? We're going to talk more about it next week. Fruitless Christians are false. I don't care how many Sunday school pins and stars you have. I don't care if you have perfect attendance. If you don't know Him, John 17.3, which is the ultimate criterion of God for the true believer, if you don't know Him, it's what God is saying. Fruitless Christians are false Christians. I love what C.S. Lewis says about this. People who claim to walk with Jesus but don't actually really walk with Jesus, their conversion is purely imaginary. <laughs> hey, i got to tell you, I've been doing this for a while. I've talked to a lot of people whose conversions were purely imaginary. And I've watched a lot of people, and I've baptized some of them, who end up walking away from the church. They, don't want, they really don't want anything to do with righteousness. They don't love righteousness. They don't love the fruit uh, that God brings into the heart of His people. A love for righteousness. A desire for righteousness. And you see, hey man, I can't live like this. I love the world more. And they leave. I've seen it a lot. And regrettably, I've baptized some of them. That's why I try to be as careful as I can about baptizing anybody. There's nothing worse for a pastor than to baptize someone and they walk away. That's the worst thing that happens to me. At least vocationally speaking. So how many good trees bring forth good fruit? Every one of them! Okay? Every one of them! 
<laughs> if you're a good tree, you will bring forth good fruit. This is an urgent message for us. You've either sat in weak or false churches or you know someone who's in a weak or false church. I don't have any doubt about it. You've either sat in one, you know someone who's in one, or you'll sit in another one soon when you leave here. And what I'm saying to you is it matters to God where you go to church. It matters to God what kind of preaching you're sitting under. This matters to God. If you don't think it matters to God, then I don't know what to say. How could this not matter to God? Of course it does. Of course it does. There are millions of people sitting in churches all over the world that are deceived. They think they're Christians and they're not. Now, if someone would take them to John 15 and talk to them for about 30 minutes, maybe they'd get a clue, right? But you've got many churches who will never address it. They'll never preach John 15. Ever. Never. You know, ignorant or false teachers, they don't care about you. They care about their job and their book royalties. That's what they care about. They don't care about you. They won't tell you the truth. They won't open a text like John 15 and, let, and just let it be said what it is. Bad theology hurts people. Wrong thinking about God leads to wrong believing and wrong believing leads to wrong living which leads to condemnation. Yes, John 15 is strong. C.S. Lewis says it's one of those chapters that's obviously for grown-ups. It's obviously for people who are willing to hear. Nothing less than heaven and hell is at stake. And don't let any false teacher tell you any differently. All you have to do is... I, I, love, I love what Francis Chan says, and I've said this to you many times. Man, you've got to read the Bible like an eight-year-old. You know, you just take the words for what they are, right? You don't try to overanalyze or overinterpret or you just receive the words and an, a, a, you know, a sharp eight-year-old, he knows exactly what that text says. You might have to help him with the interpretive challenges, but he knows exactly what the text says. So yeah, it's good. It's good for Christians together and celebrate. And, you know, as I, I, I call it, and as I've said it before, somewhat of a derogatory term, but I understand what's being said. You know, I, hey, I like happy church. But hey, let the text drive it. Let the biblical text drive, uh, you know, what the, the, the ambience of the evening is. So what's the ambience of this evening? This is a pretty heavy message that God has for you and me, right? And so here's the deal. This may, be, this may be eternity for you tonight. Here's the deal. Are you, uh, are you a branch bearing fruit or not? Do you have, is there, we'll talk more about it next week, is there evidence of righteousness in your life? Do you love righteousness? Do you love Christ? Can you lay down your, your lusts for Christ? Do you love Him like that? Yeah, this is, 
this is a strong message. I love Happy Church, but I'm going to let the text dictate the ambiance. I'm not going to try to gin up some false excitement when God wants us to think deeply about who we are in Him. And that's what He's talking to us about in this text. I'm done. Um, I preached this text, <laughs> I think it was 10 years ago now. And, and I, so I wanted to go out on a famous, I won't name the church, but I wanted to go out on a famous mega church website in the States and see how they handle John 15. Actually, I didn't think I would find them handling John 15. Actually, they did teach a small group on John 15. They didn't preach it, but they did a small group on it. So I wanted to see what they had to say. And you know what the guy said? The guy said, hey, you know, don't be uptight about the text. Heaven and hell, that's not really what this is about. It's not good to be fruitless, but it's nothing to get uptight about. Now, that's just malpractice. Or a fool, or someone who's completely ignorant. That's the only way you can explain it. Or demonic. That would be the other way. False teaching is always demonic. He's the father of lies. If you're sitting under lies, um, you know those of you, when you leave, if you, if you allow yourself to sit under lies, you will be accountable to God for sitting under Satan's lies. So next week, we'll continue in John 15. We'll, we'll talk more about this this word picture that God has given us, we'll talk about what does abiding mean? What does pruning mean? What is fruit? We'll develop that a little bit further. How abiding affects um, our prayer life and how we glorify God as we abide in Him and as we bear much fruit. So we're going to, you know, we just have done an introduction. I think an important introduction, but it's just an introduction into John 15. Beloved, if you don't, Believe me about anything else. Believe me about this. Bad theology hurts people. It deceives people. It takes people to hell. But good theology. Biblical theology. The red words preached with integrity changes lives. And it changes eternities. Okay? We know what God says in Romans 10.13. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. So I lovingly say to you, each one of you in this room, what Paul told the Corinthians, if you need to, examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. It's the most loving thing I can say. Because every time we come in here, everything forever is at stake. We'll talk more about this beautiful parable or allegory or analogy or simile, whatever you want to call it. We'll talk more about it next week. So let's pray together. Lord, thank You for the text. <clears throat> I do believe it's an eight-year-old text. There's not really a whole lot of mystery here. 
The words are the words. The grammar is the grammar. If we are faithful with all of the Bible as we look at John 15, there's no question about what you're saying to us here. Lord, thank You that You speak to us as adults. You don't patronize us. You don't condescend to us. You just tell us the truth and You leave it with us. We're thankful for that, Father. I love the Word of God. We, we profess in this church to love the Word of God even when it stings and even when it's hard and, and even when it's strong. We love the Word of God. For by it, faith will come. Not only saving faith, but persevering faith. So Lord, thank You. Thank You for the message. We give all glory and honor to You because You are the God of salvation. You save Your people. It is for Your glory. It's all for Your glory. May we not touch it. May we not demean it in how we talk about it. From eternity past to the end of eternity future, You have saved Your people. We love You. We praise You. What a great and awesome God. In Jesus' name, Amen. Let's stand and I'll read a benediction and we'll be dismissed. Now get out there and invite your friends and colleagues and neighbors to come and worship with us. We have no new people yet and you're responsible. Okay? So, I'm praying for you and I'm responsible too. So, Let's, let's invite our friends and colleagues to come. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance on you and give you peace. Um, yes. I hope to see you next time. Have a great week. Bring a friend. God bless. See you next time.